0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Listen for God's word for us. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, bar a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we pray together shall we God as you're singing those words of surrender and proclaiming all that we are is surrendered to all that you are we come now listening hearing your word be read for us proclaimed for us and now we come ready to hear May you, by the power of your spirit, give us ears to hear, minds to focus, and then bodies that are eager to obey holistically in all of life, because there we might find joy in the intimacy of walking with you as we await your return. God, we long for your pleasure. We long to glorify your name. Equip us now in this moment. Help us to feel your presence as you've promised by the power of your spirit. And so we do and pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Well, it is good to be together. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have to confess, you know, confession's good for the soul. I, there was this moment in my life where I thought having kids would make life just a little bit busier. Like that was kind of the, I know, I know some of you are looking at me like I'm an idiot. But here's the deal. I really did. I thought, you know, if we have a couple kids, life's going to be a little bit busier. Now having been a parent for a minute and having three kids, I realized how idiotic um, that idea was. And realizing that really kids don't make your life a little bit busier. They make life impossible. Um, I love children. Okay, we've got three. They're amazing gifts to us. But the thing about kids, here's one example. They don't understand That human beings need personal space. That's just a, that is something in terms of cognitive development they just don't get at certain ages. For example, when I do what every human being needs to do at certain points in life, like go to the bathroom, suddenly my life is transformed into one of those zombie thriller movies. Like... So one of my kids will have their fingers under the door. Another one will be twisting the door handle, although it's locked. But all three of them will, like, groan and pant after. Ah, It's like, come on out, Dad. I'm like, no, I need some time. I mean, there's just something about kids that makes life unduly stressful. And the the tasks that were unbelievably simple before kids become 1,000 times more difficult after kids. I mean, my wife... Is one of the strongest, smartest human beings I know. But when I walk through the door at 5 p.m., I see anger in her eyes. That reminds me of like Gerard Butler from the movie 300. Like, and I kid you not, the phrase that consistently comes out of her mouth is, it's been a day. You know, and it's like, oh, here we go. We're all in this. You know, the kids are screaming in the back. And it's wonderful. But I have to be honest, you can't just add kids to life as usual and expect it to be a little busier. It makes life unduly difficult. And really, when I ask seasoned parents and I tell them about, you know, our experience, their response is, well, good. You know, the fact that it's hard is the sign that you're doing it right. It's like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, And here's the point of that. This is an amazing parallel to the life of faith. You see, Jesus, when he enters our life, he's not a nice little add-in to the rhythms of comfort that we have in the rest of our life. When Jesus steps into our life, he messes with our habits, he reorients our schedule, he gives us a new understanding of reality, some total. And the reality is, is that if following Jesus is extraordinarily easy, there's a really good chance we're not following him at all. I mean, it just takes a cursory reading of the New Testament. Those who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus, who knew Jesus best, to understand that if following Jesus is easy, we aren't doing it right. And what's so amazing is that this ancient church in Smyrna, they understood this. They knew it to be true. Now, if you're new with us, we've been walking through the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. In these first three chapters, we find seven letters written to seven historical churches that are across Asia Minor, what is now known as modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches have unique messages, but each one of these letters is meant for all the churches, for all of us throughout time as we seek to follow Jesus. What's so unique about this letter today that we just heard read for us is just how short it is. What's so fascinating about the letter to the church of Smyrna is that it's missing something that nearly all the other letters have the letter to the church in Smyrna the reason it is so short it is is because it completely does not have any sort of rebuke of the church of Smyrna in Jesus' eyes this is a successful church this is a church where he's saying well done this is a church that's really striving after Jesus. That's hitting it gangbusters. That they're pressing the you know, they're pressing the limits of what it means to follow Jesus. But it's anything but easy. It's extraordinarily difficult. And the message that Jesus brings to this church that is experiencing suffering and will experience more suffering is keep going. Now, I got to be honest, when I first read this little letter to the church in Smyrna, I thought what on earth like This is not our context in Kansas City. I mean, we live in a context within the United States where, frankly, comfort is king. Ease is what we strive after. The American dream and the world of plenty is where we find ourselves. If you were to stand up in your office and say, I follow Jesus, people will be angry that you yelled, but nobody's going to murder you. And so I began to ask myself, what does this letter have to say for you and me today? You see, we need this letter written to the church in Smyrna exactly because we aren't Smyrna. Because, listen, every church in every city, no matter what city you find yourself, no matter the cultural context, to be a church, to be followers of Jesus in any city costs us something. Always. And there are believers, brothers and sisters around the world who are losing their lives by standing up for Jesus. Literally, physically being murdered and martyred for the sake of Christ. And their testimony and what is experienced, their experience is not just for us as a church to gather together here in Kansas City and to pray for them. That's a part of it. But if all we do is pray for those who are persecuted, we actually patronize them. We need to first listen to them and learn from our brothers and sisters around the globe as their faith has been refined and actually comes to rebuke us in our comfort to a costlier faith than we often embrace. And so today, we listen to what Jesus has to say through the Apostle John to the church in Smyrna. And really what it does is it raises three questions that you and I and us collectively as a church should be asking ourselves if we want to follow Jesus rightly. Because here's the deal, folks. If following Jesus is easy, we aren't doing it right. Let's see what we have to learn from the church in Smyrna and what Jesus has to say to them this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Verses 8 through 11 will be our text this morning. Now, the city of Smyrna was a significant port city, like I said, in Asia Minor, or what is the west coast of modern-day Turkey. And they were an extremely influential and wealthy city. They were also a very, very, very patriotic city. They loved the Caesar, and their allegiance to the Caesar led them to be what historians say is one of the first cities to build a temple to Caesar Tiberius you see they didn't just honor their leader they worshiped him as a god their patriotic nature and the framework of their pantheon of gods had expanded to now include even the Caesar the incarnate god who leads the Roman Empire for them and many in the ancient world government and religion were not separated but were married together And so to see their leader and to bow the knee was to worship their leader. To not worship the leader meant that you were not patriotic. And if you weren't patriotic, then you were considered and viewed at with suspicion at best. This ramped up soon after this letter was written. The Emperor Domitian of the Roman Empire commanded that everyone across, across the Roman Empire must bow the knee in worship of the emperor. That was everyone, or at least nearly everyone. You see, there was a couple religious groups who were given some exemptions. Okay? The Jewish people were one of those groups, where they actually didn't have to pray to the Caesar and bow the knee to Caesar, but they could pray for the Caesar, There were some specific religious exemptions for particular religious groups. And this is what's really crucial to understand as we come to our text today. Christians were not given that exemption. Those who embraced Jesus were not given that exemption. You see, across in the first century, there were many Jewish folks who saw Jesus as the promised Messiah that all the Old Testament prophecies and hunger pains have been angling towards and pointing towards. And they saw Jesus as the promised one. And as they embraced Jesus as the true Messiah who died and rose again, and now God's kingdom is breaking in. And one day when this Messiah returns, all of God's kingdom will finally be on earth as it is in heaven. But there were plenty within the Jewish faith who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And over and over again, we see this in extra-biblical evidence as well as in the book of Acts, documented again and again that the Jewish religious leaders would often push out those who had braced Jesus from the synagogue and would find themselves now ostracized and seen as a separate sect of the Jewish faith. And the Jewish religious leaders would often, again and again, after being frustrated probably with many now embracing Jesus as the Messiah, many Jewish people embracing Jesus as the Messiah, the Jewish religious leaders, probably out of envy and maybe even their own religious zeal, would out them to the Roman government and say, See, listen, we have an exemption. We don't have to bow the knee to Caesar. But these Christians don't have an exemption, and they're not bowing the knee to Caesar And so you find Christians in an extraordinarily patriotic city, one of the most patriotic cities, which involved religious worship of the leader. And then other religions and historic, those who have rejected Jesus, now outing Christians, and it's led to undue persecution. Which is why we read in verse 9, I know your tribulation, says Jesus, and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of satan woo okay right so like that's pretty heavy Words. What Jesus is saying, remember, this is Jesus speaking, Jewish Messiah, through the Apostle John, a Jewish man who has now embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, is that there are Christians there within Smyrna, within its patriarchal or patriotic structure, who are not bowing the knee and saying, Caesar is Lord, but are saying that Jesus is Lord. And there are other religious Jewish leaders, as Jesus confronted them in his day, who are saying, hey, and listen, Roman authorities, those folks aren't with us. So you need to take care of them. And they're experiencing all sorts of oppression. Now, John uses some pretty strong language here, and I want to be very clear on what's happening in this particular passage. You see, John is saying that there are individuals, there are leaders, there are people who have found themselves aligning with evil purposes, There are religious leaders in this context who are saying that they are now in line with God's purposes but in reality in their rejection of Jesus find themselves anti-Christ, against Christ, against God's purposes in the world. And I want to be very clear, none of this language as it has been inappropriately applied in the history of the world is meant to bring about an anti-Semitic behavior or practice. If we believe that when we look at this text, we completely miss the point because every bit of what Christian teaching is is that human beings are not our enemy. Human beings are not our enemy. Rather, as people of Jesus, what we come to see, and frankly, what's even more alarming is that when you reject Jesus, even though you think you're doing good work, as soon as you reject Jesus, you might inadvertently find yourself furthering the purposes of evil. This is something really alarming that the Apostle John is communicating via the words of Jesus here. And so these Christians are experiencing suffering by means of property confiscation. They're experiencing physical abuse and harm. They're imprisoned. They're being ostracized and expelled from various trade guilds, which is costing them jobs. I mean, this has had massive ramifications on their everyday life. Because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar. What about us? If we were living in ancient Smyrna, could you be convicted of being a Christian? Could people look at your life and say, there's something different. There's something about this person that follows (laughs) You smell like Jesus, you look like Jesus, you seem to be acting like Jesus, and you won't bow the knee to see. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Could somebody convict you of being a Christian? I want you to think about that. What has following Jesus cost us? Because listen, we can look around the world and we look at our church partners in China and how they have to often go underground and their churches get confiscated by the government. We can look at our church, our brothers and sisters in Africa who are experiencing undue pain. Our, our brothers and sisters in the Middle East. So much persecution and suffering where it really does cost them their life. Maybe you saw this just this last week. There were two Nigerian evangelical Christians that were slaughtered on video where Boko Aram... Slaughtered them. This is an organization that's seeking to establish an Islamic state in Nigeria. Slaughtered them on video and shared the video broadly. In Iran, to convert from Islam to Christianity is against the law. Such that by very nature, if you grew up Muslim and then you now embrace Jesus as God, where Islam says that Jesus is nothing more than a prophet, he didn't die on the cross and he surely didn't rise again, that's the teachings of Islam. Christianity says, no, he's God. He died on the cross for the sins of the world and he rose again. If you embrace that, you've broken the law. And in some communities, your family is empowered to take your life due to the communal shame of your conversion. And you know what's so fascinating? I mean, this is the church of Smyrna. That's what I'm thinking of when I think of the church of Smyrna. What's so fascinating is in those contexts where persecution is at its highest, That's where people are coming to Jesus in droves. You want to know why? It's because people are seeing people lay everything on the line, everything, even their own lives for the sake of Jesus. And when that happens, you have to take Jesus seriously. What about us? Could we be convicted of being a Christian? What does it cost you? Does it cost you your time? In such a way that actually there are certain good initiatives that you're a part of that you wouldn't have been a part of if it were not for Jesus? Are there certain countercultural measures that you're partaking in? that you wouldn't have partaken in if you weren't following Jesus? Has it cost you money in the radical call of generosity, both broadly from Jesus and specifically to the church from Jesus? Has it cost you your sexuality in some way in terms of embracing his ethic, his norms and expectations in relationships? Has it cost you any level of comfort in any area of your life? This week, I want you to engage in a life audit. And I want you to do so with the sober warning behind you. Because if you look across your life and you find no evidence of sacrifice or cost, maybe, just maybe, you aren't following Jesus. Let's return to the context here in Smyrna. And listen to what Jesus says through the Apostle John here in verse Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God allows Satan to work out his plans. Do you see this? The Satan. Satan. The one who comes with this false accusation against God's people. God allows Satan to work out his plans in order that, there's this henna clause in the Greek which gives us purpose, in order that your faith might be tested. And then he goes on to compl- or explain 10 particular days now are those days literal literal days or is that symbolic of like the perfect amount of time scholars disagree as we seek to interpret and understand what's happening in this text but one thing is clear is that this is pointing back to a particular person in the history of the Jewish faith Daniel Daniel chapter 1 verse 12 we read of Daniel and three of his friends who draw a line in the sand and they decide in that moment for 10 days We're not going to eat the food that was offered to us by king, by the king of Babylon. The king of Babylon and the nation of Babylon had ransacked Jerusalem and taken some people as exiles back to his kingdom. And he laid out food before them. And he said, you must eat this food. And to reject this food was in many ways a sense of treason. But Daniel said, ah, this food in many ways is worship to the king of Babylon. As well as probably not being kosher. And with both of those things coming together they said that's it we're going to draw the line in the sand and we're not going to eat that food instead why don't you give us a vegetarian diet and a little bit of water and after 10 days I want you to see who's better and after 10 days everybody's astounded at how strong Daniel and his three friends are over against the others and what Jesus is communicating to the church of Smyrna here is that yes there is a moment of test coming but in that, your faith will be proven genuine to you and it will demonstrate Jesus' power to an onlooking world in a way that Daniel was similarly a witness in the midst of oppression with King, the king of Babylon. And this is where you get this interesting phrase up in verse 9 that I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. You see, everybody looks at these poor little Christians is like, oh, look at these poor Christians. Look at the poverty that they find themselves in, in which they have lost a lot and find themselves in many ways in rags due to their allegiance to Jesus. But Jesus sees something that the rest of them can't see, that this test will reveal, which is a riches that is deep within, a spiritual riches that Jesus entrusts to those who hold fast to him, even in the midst of tests and trials and difficulty. And look at this. What what does Jesus say about this test? For some of you, right, that means you'll be imprisoned. Now, we need to understand prison back then wasn't like prison today. Prison today, you can serve five to ten years and you serve a five to ten year sentence. That is your sentence. Prison back then, in a large majority of cases in the ancient world, wasn't a holding cell. It was a place you went awaiting trial, And usually that trial meant capital punishment. This is why Jesus says to them, be faithful unto death. This imprisonment meant that capital punishment was on the horizon. And I want you to just do an imaginative journey with me. Imagine you're the church in Smyrna. And write this letter... This revelation to John actually is a circular letter. It went to all seven churches, and then it went out to churches beyond that. And I want you to imagine, like, you heard that John had this special revelation from Jesus to us. So, like, church is packed, right? People are together, and they're waiting to hear what it is Jesus has to say to them. First, they hear this glorious vision of Jesus and his power and his might. Jesus is alive. This is awesome. And then they hear a specific word spoken to the church in Ephesus, and now it's Smyrna's turn. And you're waiting to hear what Jesus has to say to you and your church. And I got to be honest with you if I'm Smyrna, like if I'm a part of this church, I'm waiting for Jesus to say, Listen, I know your tribulation. I'm super powerful. So, I'm gonna make it a lot easier going forward, okay? Like, it's gonna get easier, so just hang on. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, I know you've had tribulation, but I want you to brace yourself because it's gonna get a lot harder. (laughs) Don't be afraid, you're gonna suffer. Like, literally, do not be afraid, you're gonna suffer. And then at least in that moment, I'm thinking there's more to this letter coming where Jesus is going to say, yeah, you're going to suffer for a little bit, but then I'm going to take you out of this, right? Like, so you, you, you're all powerful. You're all good. You're going to take us out of the suffering. And that's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say? He says, brace yourself to die. And be faithful until you breathe your very last. I want you to look around at the people sitting around you right now. Go ahead, don't just look at me. It wasn't a joke. (laughs) I want you to imagine you're hearing that letter read to us here. And what that means is maybe a friend of yours is going to be imprisoned and murdered. A spouse, a child, you. The weight in which this hits the church in Smyrna. Is heavy beyond belief. The cost of discipleship and holding fast to Jesus wasn't something that was a figment of the imagination but very, may very well cost them their lives. And Jesus says, I'm in control. Hold on until you die. I mean, the question I often find, my, find myself asking is like, how do I avoid dying? <laughs> like, how do I have a radiant life? And that's a good question to ask. But here Jesus is saying, hey, I want to invite you to die with me and to have a radiant death. But how on earth do you do that? Like, how do you, because it's not like just one day you wake up and you're like, I'm ready to die. No, like, this, there, this requires a level of preparation. How do you prepare for that? How do we prepare to die? And across the New Testament, modeled brilliantly by Jesus, is that over and over again, if we're ever going to be ready to die when the test comes, we have to be dying daily and choosing to die to self over and over and over in the seemingly small ways, and almost a death by a thousand cuts, it seemingly feels that way until the final moment where it could feel like it could cost us everything. If we want to be ready for that, then we have to die a thousand deaths to finally be ready for the ultimate test whenever that comes. Now, I know death wasn't on, like, everybody's top five list of topics to kind of, like, talk through this morning. Um. But it's absolutely essential. Following Jesus and taking up our cross and the image of death is essential to discipleship, to knowing Jesus, to being known by him, and to knowing actually the life and life abundant he calls us to. So how do we prepare for this? There's a brilliant example in church history of someone who I think encapsulated what it means to be prepared for this test. And it was Polycarp. He died around circa 160 AD. Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He was discipled by the Apostle John, the one whom wrote this letter. Just think about that. Polycarp learned from John who learned from Jesus. And his moment of martyrdom, the story that is recounted, that has been held on to by the church for millennia, is one of courageous death. He's arrested and knows that it's coming. He's like praying up in this room, up in the top of this building, and he's praying. And he knows that his death is coming. And the soldiers come, and he says, wait, 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 can I just pray for a couple minutes? And they let him pray. And all the soldiers feel awful that they're arresting him. I mean, this dude, he's like 86 years old. And they take him to the Colosseum. And when he's before the the political leaders of the day, surrounded by the masses. And they say, reject your king and bow to the Caesar. What he says is truly astounding. He says, 86 years have I served him. And he has done me no wrong. He's about to lose his life. He's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And then he says, why don't you bring out the wild animals? You're too afraid to do that? Oh, you've already put them away. Why don't you light me on fire? Because I will never, ever, ever reject or blaspheme my king, my savior, Jesus. And so he's burned alive with a Colosseum cheering the praises of Caesar at his death. But what's really important to recognize is that Polycarp didn't become a follower of Jesus and was ready to do that the next day. Many are, some are, and some are counted and given a special grace for that. But Polycarp, over 86 years, spent time in prayer, fasting, studying the scriptures, mining this book, this revelation to John as he led the church in Smyrna thinking of Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna years upon years cultivating this intimacy with Jesus and his practices and his precepts till finally when the final test came he had a courageous integrity to lay even his very life on the line no matter the cost this is how we prepare we don't know when the test will come But we can be preparing. Are you ready to lay down your life? Because listen, the stakes are really high, folks. We can choose comfort, self-fulfillment, an easy life, but we'll sacrifice the crown of tomorrow. How do we find strength for this? Look with me again at verse 10 and verse 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Which is insinuating that some will be. Some will be. You see, the crown was often in Roman culture predominantly reserved for military heroes. This laurel wreath of victory And Jesus doesn't give out participation trophies. He gives out this crown of life to those who endure unto death. And how do we do that? While we rest in his victory, in his life, his death, and his resurrection over sin, over death, over hell itself. And how do we rest in his victory? But by dying with him both daily in preparation and then ultimately before the throne. Jesus's ironic way to victory is through losing. Losing our lives, losing our rights, losing our privileges, and holding fast to Jesus above all else. You see, everyone dies for something. Everyone dies for something. The question is what's that one thing you're going to die for? And do we think that Jesus is worth it? You see, Jesus doesn't measure wins. By public speeches or how much we know or public policy or how much money we got in our bank account or how comfortable we've made our lives. None of that matters. What matters is are we being faithful unto death to our king, the true king. And he will so reserve us and save us from the second death. This is the power of the one. And Do we believe that he's worth it? Because here's the deal. Here's the deal, folks. He thought you were worth it. The sovereign one, the first and the last, the words here have at the beginning. The dead one who came back to life, the one who wields life in his hands, entered history and died for you and for me. He thought you and I were worth suffering for and giving his very life for. All that he had for all that you are, dying our death in our place and then rising again to show us the pathway to life, to victory, to hope. Such that not even governments can extinguish, death can't swallow, and even suffering will one day surrender. Is he worth it? He thought you were worth it. If you think he's worth it, then count the cost. and Prepare to die. This is what we have to learn from our brothers and sisters. This is what we have to learn from our Lord and Savior Jesus. This is what challenges you and me. Even in a culture where we may not, quote, unquote, lose our lives physically for associating with Jesus. And here's the deal. We can't do this alone. And and, and frankly, you and I, we, we can't even do that with just the people in this room. We need solidarity with our brothers and sisters around the globe. And, you know, I can't help but think about how this letter is going around to these different churches and how like the church in Ephesus read the section on Smyrna. (laughs) The church in Thyatira read the section on Smyrna and they're like, guys, 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 we got to pray for Smyrna right now. Do you see this? Jesus is like telling them that death is on the horizon for our brothers and our sisters. We got to pray for them. And so listen, that's what we're going to do this morning. I mean, here's the deal. Historians have said that since Jesus' death and resurrection, 43 million people have died for their faith in Jesus. 43 million people have been martyred because, because of the specific reason of saying I associate my life with Jesus. And there are some, as sociologists have highlighted, around 200 million people who are being persecuted the world over. And here's a staggering number. 60% of them are Children. This should break our hearts, and it should lead us to prayer. It should lead us to take on with solidarity and echo the prayers of the suffering and the persecuted, to cry out and to intercede for the abused, for our brothers and sisters that are overlooked by everyone else but not by their family. And so today we're going to pray, and we're going to do something a little bit differently. Every once in a while we do this, or I'm going to open us up in prayer and then I'm going to have a microphone, and I want to invite us here. If you're here and God's laid it on your heart to pray for the persecuted church, even churches here within the United States who have experienced undue persecution as well, if that is a space that God's laying on your heart, I'm going to come and I'll bring the microphone to you and you can pray for them. Okay? Pray for our family. And then we'll close it up by me directing us to the Lord's Supper, a place where we find, yes, solidarity with our King, but with our brothers and sisters around the globe who lose their lives just to taste bread and juice. Can we do that together? Does that sound okay? Well, either way, we're going to do it. Let's pray. (laughs) Let's pray. Sovereign God, we pause to pay, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus. We pray that while in the severity of pain, your Holy Spirit would strengthen them to remember the promise of everlasting life for all who trust Jesus. May the church, amidst so much hate, remember how much you love them with an invincible love as displayed in the gospel, so that they might know how to share that same gospel even with those who oppress them. Heavenly Father, may those who are gripped by fear be empowered by your grace to fearlessly tell others about Jesus. Loving God, we pray. Loving God, we pray that in the midst of suffering, imprisonment, beatings, rejection, and confiscation of loved ones, they would continue to have access to your word, that they might be enriched by your promises. Give our brothers and sisters courage to remain in their homeland as a gospel witness and continue to bring around them a new family in the church who loves and supports them emotionally and physically. Also, may you be an advocate for women who are socially vulnerable or have lost the custody of their children because of their faith. And we pray that you would provide persecuted believers with jobs and safe places to live. God, may you break our hearts over the suffering of your body around the world and rather than run from it, guide us in courage to enter into suffering with our global family for the purpose of your gospel and the glory of your name. Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Precious Holy Spirit, comfort, care, sustain the church in all places until the return of jesus christ as you have done up until this moment it is in the name of jesus for whom millions have counted it in honor to die to self and to the world we pray amen amen and amen for those whom god has laid upon your heart would you please stand and pray especially for uh, the Iranian believers who are being, uh, the leaderships are being arrested and taken, but Father, they have the boldness and the courage, we pray your spirit would be ever present in their lives, that you would raise up new leaders who would be strengthened and do your work that you've called them to do in Yeshua's
1: name. we just pray that your spirit would dwell upon your church, Father, everywhere that it would be a light to you, Lord. Father, we thank you for the strength and the solidarity of our brothers and sisters who face persecution. We thank you, Father, for the encouragement and the light that they are, Father, to the world. Lord, we pray that you would continue to strengthen them. We don't know why you've called them to suffer and given them this pathway, Father. But I pray, Lord, that they would know your joy in the midst of it and that they are furthering your kingdom in the earth, Lord. We thank you for their witness. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to know what to do with the tremendous freedoms that we have and how we can best support the church around the world as they um, do your great work, Father of taking the gospel to places that, frankly, most of us are afraid to go. Thank you, Father, for their witness. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see and know how to best pray and support our brothers and sisters around the world. We love you, Jesus. We trust you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that uh, that you would move like fire throughout the world, Lord, consuming and calling people to you. In Jesus' name.